Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. We are in 1 Corinthians, and uh, yeah, I'm excited about it, and we'll actually be in 1 Corinthians. Yesterday was, or uh, last Sunday was a bit of a jump start. Uh, on getting some context for, for the narrative of Corinth and Paul's investment in that city and the establishment of that church. And so we got some of the background story that helped paint a picture that maybe makes uh, this, this book, this epistle, uh, that much more applicable to our situation in 2022 in Kansas City. And so uh, we're beginning to see some of the parallels between us Midtown Baptist Temple, the college and young adult ministry, and the church in Corinth. And as we learned last week in 59 AD, the young church in Corinth, they were only about seven or eight years old at this point, had their hands full. They had their hands full. They loved the Lord, and they wanted to serve Him, but they had a very difficult ministry field ahead of them. The work seemed incredibly difficult, very, very hard. And as the city of Corinth was one of the most wicked in the entire world at the time, uh, you can imagine how daunting that would feel. It was a place of Greek philosophy and academic arrogance, okay? not so unlike uh, the institutions in Kansas City. All right? For those of you who are in college or been to college here in Kansas City, you maybe have experienced some of that, that intellectual elitism uh, that we, we see in I remember it most fondly in my philosophy class at UMKC, that kind of arrogance, or maybe psychology, but the idea that human beings are constantly, be, uh, we're constantly getting better, we're constantly getting smarter, and our theories are constantly being refined, and we are constantly becoming more the center of our own worship. And I think some of you are familiar with that. It was a place of false religion, Corinth was, and a place of superstition, a place where sexual sin was accepted as part of the culture and religion. And so we see in Corinth that that, uh, that sexual promiscuity and uh, the decision, the choice, the free will choice to have sex with whomever and whatever you wanted to have sex with, um, that was your decision. And it was part of who you were and your identity. And we recognize that as true here in our own city as well. We saw the potential for how any believer or church may lose faith in light of the scale of sin in the city, right? We saw that, and we, that resonated with us. But see, here's the problem with Corinth, is that the sins that surrounded them in their city were beginning to creep into the church. And they weren't just outside of the doors of the church. They were now beginning to be a part of the identity of the believers that were within. The culture of the city around them had begun to influence them, and, and they had become uh, susceptible to disagreement, to infighting. They'd grown accustomed to ignoring sin, so they would see sin in their own midst and they wouldn't do anything about it. They would dismiss it. They had grown, they had grown less focused on the mission. All of their problems and their eyes that were turned inward and their focus on self had caused them to lose sight of what God wanted for them. And so, as we learned last week, this can be us too. 
We are not so spiritual and faith-filled to be somehow to, to be somehow protected or insulated from turning our eyes away from God and beginning to look on self and our own personal justifications. So this was the backdrop to Paul's letter, and today we're going to explore his introductory statements to the church in Corinth. And the things that he had to say actually are really, really important. This is not just some greeting, but it is also the groundwork for the entirety of the message that he has for them. He is is laying a groundwork and giving them a reminder of who they are and who they're supposed to be in light of Jesus Christ. And so this is really, really important. And so we have to catch this. The words that that Paul is saying here are not just him saying, hey, guys, what's up? I I got something to tell you. Um, The words that he shares are truths that will also impact our faithfulness and they'll have uh, usefulness for God's kingdom work in our midst. Okay, so this is what we're going to look at today. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord if he would please be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you. Uh, We thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, Lord, I'm grateful to see all my friends uh, and my family, my church family here today. And um, Lord, I know that with the holidays and with um, traveling and with the sickness and the illness um, that, that, that surrounds us, I know it's easy to feel distant from what you're doing. And so, you know, a lot of empty chairs and a lot of people at home sick. And uh, if we're not careful, Lord, we can lose sight of who you've made us to be. And we can lose sight of the fact that we are a family. And so, God, I'm, I'm grateful to you for bringing us all back together Uh, that we might worship together, that we might praise together, that we might converse together, we might have fellowship uh, restored, and Lord, that we might hear from your word. And with that, Lord, I also recognize um, my ability to get in your way. And I I recognize that as a a man that um, I have the ability to really, uh, I mean, I know myself uh, in fear and in a desire to honor you, um, Lord, unintentionally get in your way. And, uh, and, and, and fall prey to speaking opinions and, and man's wisdom. Um, like, like almost as though I sometimes convince myself that I can help you. Um, but that's not what you need today. Uh, you need me to step aside and let your word be cr- proclaimed. And, and we just want to glorify you. And so in our weakness, in our frailty, um, even in our worship, we say to you, we say uh, that we want to sing with one voice. And yet, um, the picture is so wonderful because none of us really can. Harmony can never truly be achieved with all these people with scratchy voices and, uh, and, you know, out of pitch and out of tune. And yet you hear it as though it's completely unified. That's your grace. And so in our frailty, Lord, meet with us. Be gracious towards us. And despite our weaknesses, Lord, would you use us to see the nations come to you? So, Lord, help us with our perspective today and give us a groundwork that we can stand on. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Dear Corinth, right? Dear Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So here we see Paul with a very customary introduction, announcing who the letter is from. Okay, Paul always does this. We always do this, right? Um, 
You know, even when we write an email, you know who the email is from based on the email address that comes with it, right? We, we want to know who the letter is from, and Paul makes it clear. I'm writing to you. Now, the, the thing that we have to know isn't the fact that Paul introduces himself, but it's the way in which he introduces himself. He refers to himself as an apostle. He, he points to his apostleship right away. Now, we recognize that Paul does this in about half of the letters that he writes. And so we read his New Testament letters, and we see that in a lot of his letters, he just says, hey, it's Paul, everybody. Right? But in about half of his letters... He points to the fact and he reminds people of his apostleship. And I think that this has significance. I think that this is important. See, see, Paul knew that he needed to clarify this point in order to remind people the authority behind the letter. Now, Paul had no desire to wield his authority to manipulate the people into submitting to him. That wasn't Paul, and that's not the Paul that we know. See, in fact, over and over again in his letters, he's quick to confess the fact that he's weak and unworthy of the title apostle. Right? He's the least of the apostles, is actually his very words. And he recognizes that the term apostle is given to him and is extended to him only by God's grace, that he does not deserve it. But he has to remind the people, why does he do this? He announces his, his apostleship because he recognizes that it's wise and that it's important to call the people to understand that there is an authority structure in God's church. You know, uh, I, think, I think we have to also remind ourselves of this truth. Now, there's the same truth because we all recognize as I look across this room and I see all of the ministers. I see all the people here. And I see them at different growth levels. I can see when I look at you, I see that some people are 10 years into their walk, five years into their walk with Jesus Christ. Some of you are brand new believers, brand new to discipleship. And it feels new and you recognize that it's new. And despite all of those different levels of growth and spiritual maturity, it's wonderful to know that God sees us all exactly the same. That there's an equality that exists between us as children of God. But we also, in the same, in the same truth, in the same, the paradox to that statement is that God, despite the fact that he sees all of us as his children, he gives us different responsibilities in the body of Christ and different titles and different things to do. And that there is an authority structure, and that's God's equity in the body. Is He's made some to be an, a hand, some to be an elbow, some to be a, 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 an, a, you know, a different appendage, right? And he's given all of us different responsibilities in the body of Christ. The fingers do not do the same thing that the elbows do. They have different responsibilities. And in that way, the authority structure in God's body works the same. And when, the, and when that authority structure gets out of whack, then, then who's steering the ship? And if we, you know, we're going to discover this chapter after chapter in the letter to Corinth, but, but there, there was division in the body of Christ because no, everybody had a different leader. Everybody was pointing to someone else as their leader, and they say, I'm following this guy, I'm following that guy. We'll get into that later, but... But, but, but what's significant is that we have to recognize that there is an authority structure within the body of Christ and that God has given 
churches, pastors, to oversee the work of leading the people. Now, I also recognize that I am a pastor, and it is very convenient, <laughs> right, for me to talk about these things. But I want, to, I want you to understand, and it, for those of you that know me, that it's, that it's with great humility that I say this to you. Because I'm very uncomfortable with the title pastor. I, like, I, I don't always love the idea that people come to me as, as their counselor or their leader. It's kind of it's a position that, is, that, is, that came to me. I didn't go to it. Let's put it that way. It kind of just showed up one day. And, and so I, I recognize that it sounds very convenient for me to say this, but look, I submit to people too, right? There are pastors in our church that I submit to. And I, I, I submit myself to Chris Best and to Will Mata and to Jeff Grasher and, of course, Sam Miles. And I submit myself, to, regardless of the fact that Mitch Dobson's been a pastor for only two weeks, I submit myself to him as, as my pastor, and we have to recognize that there is an authority structure in place in the church, not so that men can manipulate men. And we know that that can happen. We've seen it in churches before. That is not God's intent. He puts overseers over the body of Christ that they might invest their life and pour themselves out into the lives of other people. That's what they're there for. And that's why Hebrews 13, 17 is so important to us. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. We don't like the word submit. But it's a critical word in our Christian faith. And submission basically means make sure that you yield yourself to them because their oversight and their leading is significant to your growth and development. Submit yourself to them. Let the word on your lips say yes. Be prepared to say yes. Now, now, we also recognize that when that leader falls outside of the bounds of Scripture, you're under no obligation to follow them. And I want you to know that that's true for me and it's true for any of the pastors in this church. When the words that they speak are unbiblical and the advice that they give seems to be extra-biblical in nature, be leery. But it's the responsibility of the pastor and the, and, and the leaders in your life to oversee you. Listen to what it says as we continue on in verse 17. For they, this is the intention of God, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that, that is unprofitable for you. In other words, what this is saying is that it's the responsibility of a pastor to shepherd the souls of people. And I love the word souls because it puts us beyond the flesh of the individual. And it causes the leader to recognize that they're not just shepherding a person, they're shepherding a soul. And in such, that they are responsible at the judgment seat of Christ to give a justification for every decision that they made on the behalf of that soul in the way that they led them. And, and the way that the, the, the verse goes on is it explains to us that when we kick against that and we push against that and we, and we don't find pleasure in the authority structure of God's church, that it robs all of us of joy. And it makes us unprofitable as a body of Christ. We have to recognize our place within the body and we have to submit to the authorities that are in front of us. 
And the reason that Paul brings this up, and he mentions his apostleship in this letter, and, le- and le- other letters, other letters as well, where the, where the church was finding it difficult uh, to submit, he brings this up for the protection of the body of Christ. Because he wants to help them. He asserts his authority because he wants to empower them and nurture them to understand that this is good. That this truth is good. And that it's good for all of us to submit to the authorities that God has given us. And that's why our key point is this. We are called to submit to God, uh, to God-ordained authorities in our lives. We're called to do that. So when Paul evokes the title apostle, he doesn't do that to throw his weight around. He does it in order to assert his authority to help, protect, empower, and nurture the congregation in Corinth. And it was in Corinth's uh, best interest to let Paul do the work of watching over their souls. It was in their best interest. interest. There's nothing convenient about Paul's investment in any of the churches. I mean, by the world's standards, Paul's life was terrible. I mean, it was no one would want this life. And it's like, not like he's gaining anything. The only thing he can gain by reminding them of his apostleship is to remind them that his leadership is love. His leadership is love to them. And to see them growing in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to see them walking in truth is his greatest joy and is only, the only reward that he needs. And that's critical for us to remember. Now, he also mentions the, the name Sosthenes in the authorship of the letter. And so, for the modern reader, Paul is an, an expected biblical author. We see that name at the beginning of a lot of letters, but Sosthenes is a name that we might be unfamiliar with. Now, we talked about him a little bit last week. Sosthenes was a chief ruler in the synagogue before his conversion. And uh, among the Christians in Corinth, he would have had a very highly regarded leadership position. People would have saw him uh, as, as an important leader. Now, Sosthenes' inclusion in the letter was not a ploy by Paul, right? Because, you know, to include his name was actually very strategic because they respected Sosthenes so much. This was not a ploy by Saul. This was an ordination of God himself. God chose to include Sosthenes in this process and make him a contributor to this letter. It was part of God's strategy. Now, according to Scripture, the prophetic work of writing Scripture was ordained and commissioned by the Spirit of God. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Okay, so we're talking about the Bible here. We're talking about scriptures written by the prophetic hand of men, given by God. So listen, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't done by Paul or Sosthenes' will or desire to compel the people. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So while while Paul may have been the chief author... And his brother in faith, Sosthenes, was there and counted among the very few, very few individuals that had the privilege of writing Scripture in the New Testament. These two men were given the work of delivering a message that that has existed for 2,000 years now. 
2,000 years so that God's words, not their words, God's words would continue to compel generation after generation. And so over the millennia, many, many people have read the words of Paul and Sosthenes, and we're grateful for that. But that brings us to this next point. If we're talking about Scripture, I think it's important for us to note that in verse 2 it says, Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ, Je- uh, Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, I want to point something out. It was, the letter was written to Corinth, okay? And this letter, we're going to go on and we're going to talk about how the letter was intended to be, you know, perpetuated throughout the entire region. We'll come to that in a second. But this letter was written to a very specific group of people. And so we have to understand that historically. This letter was for a group of people that were gathering together in Corinth. And it says, there's, there's two different designators here. There's two different titles that Paul gives this group of individuals, two different terms that he, he gives to these people. And the first one is this. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Okay, and I don't want to gloss over that. All right, there's things that we need to learn from that. First of all, this letter was to a local assembly in Corinth. All right, and and the thing that we have to know as New Testament believers, I think this gets lost on us in our postmodern church, because so many people want to talk about the universal church. We forget the fact, we forget the fact that the majority of our New Testament is intended to be read to specific congregations and that God was concerned with local assemblies, that he wanted to use the local church to get his work done. And so we read this letter and we recognize this letter was for a specific group of people historically. And nothing has changed there. God does have a universal church that he wants to one day redeem. And in his eyes, he sees the bride of Christ as the the assembly of all of the local churches throughout the whole world. But God does have an intention for every local body and for ours as well. The one at 40th and Walnut. God wants to use Midtown Baptist Temple to see his work achieved in this city and throughout the world. Okay? And even though that's complicated, you know, here's the deal. The church today often wants to focus their attention on the universal church in order to escape the accountability of a local assembly. And so I want to point that out. Like, there's so many truths here that I want, like, I want to camp out on that for just a second. Don't you fall prey to that kind of nonsense. How altruistic and like abstract is that? I think you hear people talk about their disdain for the, for the institution, the church. And you hear people talk about how they make excuse for why they don't attend a local assembly. And they bounce around from church to church all over our city and all over. This is happening every, especially every urban center. People just, it's like they've got 51 flavor, flavors and they're gonna, they'll visit these churches. But at the end of the day, they're trying to escape accountability under the guise of the universal church. They think that that's some sort of covering or justification for not being accountable. And that ought not be true for us. The fact that this letter is to a local body should awaken us to the fact that God is concerned with local churches and he wants to use little groups of people just like ours. Now, I want to point more specifically and focus on the whole phrase, which is the church of God, which is at Corinth. And so this title is a title of ownership. You recognize that, right? 
It's a title of ownership and association. The phrase church of God shows up in 1 Corinthians four times. Four times. In the New Testament as a whole, only eight times. And so this title, Church of God, and when Paul writes it, or Sosthenes is writing it time and time again, they're trying to communicate something to this group of believers. This phrase, Church of God, is important. Now, we know that the word church means gathering. But of God has great significance. This is a gathering of God in Corinth. And the phrase of God is critical. And it's critical because so often we find ourselves forgetting who owns us. We are of God. His name is stamped upon us. We so often forget who we belong to. Like, and we don't just for, forget it once in a while. Like, I, I, think, I think that we struggle to forget it in every single moment of the day. We are so concerned with our own objectives. And we're so busy listening to everyone else besides God. We are constantly in danger of, of, of forgetting the fact that we belong to him. We are of him. And we have been adopted by God. He has put his name upon us. His very name is upon us, his church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And he owns us. We belong to him. When we forget that we are of him, then we are certain to pledge our allegiance to someone or something else. Because we recognize that we always have to be of something, right? Everybody's got their chief's gear on today, right? We are of the chiefs, okay? There's lots of things that we are of. We like to believe that we are, we make associations everywhere we go, right? We carry the brand of, of, of every institution that we sign our name to. Um, I've been joking with Larry. He used to be of Planet Fitness. <laughs> And now he's of, what was it, Genesis or? The YMCA. The YMCA. <laughs> and I was debating with him the other day why he should still be of Planet Fitness. <laughs> right? But we make these associations with our whole life. What school we go to, what degree we have, what job we have. We make these associations and we become of everything else besides the one that, that caused us to be born again the one that shed his light upon us, that redeemed us. We forget that we're of him. And the church in Corinth had forgotten that too. We are his church. We are the church of God. And despite all the many ways in which the name of the church has been besmirched in our world, despite all the ways in which we've failed, despite all the ways in which the world has vilified us, we still remain God's very own. We are his church. And we must be careful not to defraud or defame what God calls his. Acts 20, 28, we read this in the last service, says this. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers 
to feed the church of God. Listen, listen, this is what I want to point to. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. We belong to him. So the church of God in Corinth is a significant title. And so is this next one. Them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Jesus Christ has done a saving and sanctifying work in our lives. Okay, now listen to me. The word sanctified means to be made holy. Okay, the word sanctify we recognize is a, 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 a past work that's present with us. Right? That's what sanctified means. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy. We have been made righteous. Romans chapter 4 talks about this idea that God has imputed unto us righteousness. And it's, Romans chapter 4 is beautiful because it talks about how even in the Old Testament, that people of faith, that came to God in faith, he gave them, he imputed unto them, he gave them something that they didn't deserve, and he gave them righteousness, which means to have an eternal and right standing before God. So that when he sees you and he looks at you, he sees you as set apart and holy for his namesake. That's the work that God has done in our lives. Them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, he has sanctified us. He has made us right. He's forgiven us. He's bestowed upon every believer the gift of salvation and the standing of righteousness and holiness before him. And I say that, and that sounds real spiritual. But so many of us recognize that intellectually, but we fail to recognize it in our heart. We fail to recognize just how much God has done for us and loved us and how he's made us right. I mean, I don't know how many of you keep journals, but all of us reflect at night in our bed and think about our lives. We think about who we are. We are on our minds a lot driving in the car, right? We are on our minds a lot of the time how we look, how we dress, how we're perceived, whether or not we're respected. We are obsessed with us. Now, the problem with being obsessed with us is that when we're honest in our hearts, we often see all the ways in which we fall short. We see the sins that no one else can see. And it's like your dirty secret with God, isn't it? How terrible you are. And we struggle... We struggle with, you know, we use words like self-worth, okay? You know, self-value. But listen to me. What we really struggle with, if we're honest with ourselves, is we struggle with self-hate. Because what we're doing is we often imagine ourselves as dirty. When God himself came to earth to make us clean, And he's called us sanctified. He's called us sanctified. He has made us to be holy when we didn't deserve it. And I wonder if we would simply rehearse that truth and that reality and meditate on that in our own lives. 
if we might not be more useful for the king, we might not be more suspended by our perspectives, consumed with vain thinking. Maybe we would actually get victory over the sins that we so often struggle with if we would simply contemplate the fact that God has already made us clean. And when he looks at you, when he looks at you, he doesn't see you in terms of your filth. He sees you in terms of your righteous standing through Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul as he describes Christ's sanctifying work in the church. Ephesians 5.25. And, and this, is a, this is a greater truth that I want us to look at. This builds upon what we've already been talking about. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So he's, he's painting a picture for us, a parallel between the relationship between a husband and his bride and Christ and his bride. Okay, now listen. That he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Okay, now listen. What this points to is the fact that God has sanctified you in terms of past tense, your salvation, but that he's also doing a sanctifying work in you. And so, you know, those things that you're so troubled about, how dirty and filthy you are? Well, God the Father doesn't see it, but the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit is revealing those things to you because he wants to do a sanctifying work through the washing of the water of the word in your life. And he wants to wash away the blemishes that you so readily see. He is continuing to do a work in you, present and future, so that one day when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that you would stand before him looking as much like Jesus Christ as possible. He is conforming you actively to the image of Jesus Christ. Who doesn't want to look more like Jesus? And so there is a sanctifying work, and that leads us to the next key point. We ought to be a church known for two things. The fact that we're sanctified and that we're being sanctified. We ought to be a church known for our position of holiness in Christ Jesus as well as our process of holiness discipleship. That's what we ought to be known as. That's how we ought to see us. When people look at us, that they would see us in terms of our position in Jesus Christ, they would be able to look at you and say, saint. You know, a lot of, a lot of religions use the word saint. You know, uh, when I think about the word saint, uh, oftentimes I think about the Roman Catholic Church. And, and the Catholic Church would say that you are in a process of sainthood and that there's things that you have to do to become saintly. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches at all. Is what the Bible teaches is that you become a saint the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. He bestows upon you something that you never earned. And I know that there's people in the room right now that aren't a saint, that you aren't sanctified because you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to point something out to you. Is that the work of religion says that you, 
that you're always striving to be better or to be good or to earn God's favor. But I want to tell you that the door of sainthood or salvation will never be given to you. It will never be opened to you if you think that you can earn it. See, the whole point of Jesus coming, like why would Jesus need to come to earth if we could just simply earn favor with God? The work was unnecessary. It was a gruesome and terrible thing that God would put Jesus Christ through if all along the way we could have just earned our way. How terrible and how graceless is that God? But see, Jesus Christ came to give us something that we could never earn. And he made us to be his saints. And now that he's stamped upon us, church of God, or the name saint, it's our responsibility to continue to follow him in his word and be sanctified through the washing of his truth. That's the work that he's doing in our lives. And we ought to be known by everyone around us for the fact that he's doing that. So when lost people look at you, they should say to themselves that you have a position of holiness with God. They recognize there's something distinct about what God's done in your life, but that there's something distinct about what God's doing in your life. You don't get to just be suspended. You don't just get to be, just to be here and, and conveniently planting yourself among this body of believers simply to have a good time and to proclaim your own righteousness. You're here to grow. You're here to be active in the work of discipleship. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Right? That's the work of salvation in our life. And purify us. That's an active work. Unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. He wants to make us peculiar in this world. He wants to make us set apart. He wants to make us unique. But we have to submit ourselves to that work. We have to let him do that. We have to choose to be disciples. And so so I believe those titles that Paul refers to them as is important. The church of God and the sanctified people of God. Now let's continue on. There's other things that we've got to note in this greeting that are really, really important. This letter, like most of Pauline letters, was intended to be shared. Okay, now this, I don't, again, I don't want to gloss over this. This holds doctrinal weight and significance for us. Listen to what it says. With all that in every place. Okay, he, so he's t- told them, look, this letter is for you, the church of God in Corinth. But also, it is also all, for all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So we know from this statement that it was God's intention that this letter would be transcribed, rewritten, and rewritten and shared throughout the region and throughout the world. That was God's intention. And if it was God's intention for his very words to be written and rewritten, don't you believe that he is culpable to protect those words from scribal error? I mean, there's so many Christians in our, in our world today that want to say that God's word is inerrant and infallible. And yet in parentheses say in the original autographs. 
in the, in the original, in the original, when Paul and Sosthenes' hands hit the page, it was that very letter that was infallible and divine. And, and, and then all of the other letters, well, you know, scribal error. The flesh of men, it, it could get in the way. If the flesh of men could get in the way of the word of God, don't you think Paul and Sosthenes would have gotten in the way? This, like, this is an incredible, incredible aspect, importance for us understanding that God's word is preserved from generation to generation. Paul knew that these letters were being rewritten and spread around. He knew that, and he wasn't afraid of it. In fact, he promoted it, and he promoted it as God's words to those people. And so the question for us is a faith question. As believers, do we actually believe that God has preserved his very words from generation to generation? Do we actually believe that when we hold the Bible in our hands, that we know that these words were ordained by God 2,000 years ago and kept for me? I don't think that's a light matter. I don't think that's something that we can just gloss over. I don't think that's something that we can explain away with academic ideas. Is God strong enough to keep his word? I mean, after all, he says that these words are more important than his very name. Now, I don't know if you know this about God, but God esteems his name pretty highly. It is the name above all names. But listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 138.2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. That means that for God, the preservation of this text is a critical work. It's a critical work. And if this letter to Corinth was to be shared among every believer in every place, everywhere that people call upon the name of the Lord, then I would say that it's safe for us to say that God is powerful enough to protect those words as they travel from place to place. And I do believe that God preserves his word. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words of silver, tried in a furnace of earth. In the midst of flesh, in the midst of dirty things, a furnace of earth. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And so the question for us is really simple. Do we believe that the Bible is God's book for us today in his very words? In his very words. Not something worth just glossing over. Okay, let's continue with the greeting. Verse 3. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not forget that it is the obligation of every minister to bear and promote grace and peace. Yes. You know, I, don't, you know, I think it was, was Seth a few months ago preached in Kaya. And he, he read every time 
that Paul started a letter just like this with grace. Right? He read all of those examples because at the beginning of every one of Paul's letters, you find him speaking out the fact that grace is upon us. And I think that points to the fact that he is a good leader. It's a good reminder for me of the significance of grace in our lives and the need for every good leader to speak grace and peace over the lives of other people. And so what do, you, what do we mean by grace? Well, when I say grace, what I mean is that, is that we recognize that we're all very undeserving of God. And yet, despite the fact that we're undeserving, he's given us his love and he's made us holy. That's grace. That's grace. And that should be the thing that's on the tip of all of our tongues. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that may minister grace unto the hearers. We ought to be ministering grace. We ought to be edifying one another. And that is the ultimate work of this letter. It's what this church needed. It needed to be encouraged towards receiving the grace of Jesus and the peace of the Holy Spirit. The church in Corinth, much like our contemporary church, had been so affected by the troubles and the vanity of the world around them that true peace was certainly precious and scarce. Do you guys ever feel that way about peace? What's happening? <laughs> Getting violent with the pulpit. Um, do you ever feel that way about peace, like it's far from you a little bit? I mean, I feel that way sometimes when the world isn't right, when anxiety is high, when I'm afraid of something, when I'm concerned about how someone might see me or perceive me. I have a tendency to lose sight of peace. I lose the peace that God's given to me. And in our world and in our city, in the chaos of this setting, in our universities, in our workplaces, with tough bosses and tough professors and people who hate the name of God, and everywhere we go, sometimes we lose sight of peace. And we have to be reminded that peace is ever-present with us and that the Prince of Peace is our father and friend. You understand? We know him. <laughs> we know him. We have to remind ourselves that the psychology and the therapy of the world, it offers nothing more to us than just a coddling voice. It wants to reassure you of something that it can't reassure you of. It wants to normalize you. When God says, I want to make you peculiar. <laughs> See, what we need is we need to remember that what really ministers to us, what really fixes us is the truth of Scripture and its edifying power and its ability to bestow upon us grace and peace in every remembrance. That's what we need. That is the thing that fixes the anxiety and depression of our world. And it will, and it will fix yours too. It's peace. It's peace to the hearers. Verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. 
So he's speaking grace again, and he's telling them, look, I'm, I thank God that I see grace on you. That in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift. Okay, so let's pause for a second here. What Paul is saying is that he can see God at work in their lives. And he's reminding them of what he sees. And he points to them and he says, look, I see that you come behind in no gift. I mean, this is a gifted people. It kind of reminds me of Kaya. I mean, I look around here and I just think about all of the ways in which God has gifted this group of people and I see it at work. I see it in the way that you love on one another. I see it in the servanthood in our church. I see it in, in the way that you counsel each other. I see it in the, in the, in the, the, uh, you know, the group of men uh, that can preach the word at any given notice in this room. I see it in the way that you lead your Bible studies. I see the giftedness. I'm so proud of that. But did you know that we can waste those things? See, that's why Paul's mentioning it here is because he wants to let them know that they can waste the very gifts that he's given them. We'll get to that. You come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom shall also, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were, uh, you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God has enriched our lives by providing us with grace and gifting and knowledge and the ability to speak truth. That's what he's given us. Now here it talks about utterance and knowledge. Okay? Now we recognize that there's a different set of spiritual gifts. We'll get to that. It was true of the first century church. Okay? We'll get to that later on. But the point I want to make here is that God refers to these gifts as utterance and knowledge. Which means the boldness to speak and the intentionality to know. In other words, this was a group of people who were gifted with boldness to speak the word of God, and they were gifted with the knowledge set of God's word to do so. Now, I want you to understand that he brings this up because they're accountable for what they have. They're accountable for it. See, the real eye-opener is that God is watching us. And he knows whether or not you are using the gifts that he's given you to glorify his name or not. That you are using your knowledge to speak truth to other people. That you're using the Holy Spirit giftedness in you to speak the truth of the gospel to others. That you're bold in your faith. He's watching and he's going to hold you accountable at the day of redemption. That's what this says. We cannot lose sight of the judgment seat focus in this passage. Look at what it says, verse 7. So that ye come behind in no gift. I know you. I know that you're gifted. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be blameless before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat? 
then in grace and in faith, use the gifts that God has given you and don't waste them on yourself. Key point. We ought to serve the Lord like we're answerable to him. We ought to serve and use our gifting. The utterance of our voice, the, the, the ability to, to uh, uh, retain knowledge in our heart and our mind, we ought to use that gifting to further the kingdom that we might have a good judgment seat. Because at the end of the day, we will answer for what we've done. We will answer for those things. You know, one of the greatest gifts of, of being a dad is that I'm smarter than my kids. <laughs> and it makes the dynamic of our home so great. Okay? Like it's kind of enjoyable being around unintelligent people. <laughs> okay? And so, so I, get the, I get the opportunity very often to observe them in their natural habitat. I get to sneak around the house and just, when they don't know that I'm there, they're lost in their own naivete, right? They are there doing their thing. I can stand back and watch them, you know, and, and sometimes it's real enjoyable. Like, I can watch them be kind to one another, right? That's nice. That's, that brings warmth to my heart. But a lot of times, I am watching them treat each other like crap, <laughs> I observe that. Sometimes I'm watching them, I, like, pick their nose and eat their boogers. That's, that was particularly funny. Was that you, Rachel? You thought Maybe I should say boogers more often. Maybe I, if I talk more like Sam, maybe I'll get more laughs. Um, but I watch them do these things, right? I'm watching them. I can see them, and they're accountable to me. Because my eyes are on them, even if they don't know it. Even if they've forgotten, my eyes are on them. And God's eyes are on you, whether you forget it or not. His eyes are on you, and you are answerable to him on how you live, how you act, how you behave, how you treat other people. Now, if we just understood this and lived it out, <laughs> our lives would be completely different. The fact that God sees you in every moment, and one day you will stand before him and answer like, that would make everything about our lives different. We shouldn't be so naive. We get to serve a loving God that is so concerned about us that he watches our every moment. That's how much he loves us. And holds us accountable to steward his blessing well. That's what a good father does. I've given you so much. I just want to stand back and I want to watch as you use the things that I've given you. But the problem is, is that he's watching <laughs> and that he is concerned because he loves you and he wants you to have every blessing that you could possibly get in this temporal world and in the world to come. 1 Corinthians 3.13 reminds us of this truth. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. There's a day that's actually going to declare whether or not you've worked the right work. Because it shall be revealed by fire. 
And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. This fire is a fire of God's judgment. Not a judgment of hell, but a spiritual fire that reveals what you've done of true worth. If any man's work abide, in other words, it lives, it, 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 it continues on, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So any of the things that you do that endure through this fire, you receive reward for. If any man's work shall be burned, in other words, it dissipates and disappears through the trying judgment fire of Jesus Christ, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And so every Christian believer is going to have your works tried. Whether, you know... We know that you're saved. You've, that, that's not in contention here. That's not a question. We know that, that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that one day you will stand in heaven. But the problem with standing in heaven is that bef before we get into the joy of being there, there's going to be a moment where God tries your works, the things that you do with your life, how you spend your time, your money, your resources, and your gifting. He's going to try all that. And so just like the church of Corinth, we need to be reminded not to waste the blessings that God has given us. We have to be reminded of that. It is absolutely critical for our now and for our eternity. So maybe you, already, maybe you guys can already see it. Maybe you can already see that there are clear parallels between us here at Midtown Baptist Temple and the, the Kaya ministry and the church in Corinth. See, there's going to be things that Paul says to them. Those are things that we need to hear too. And we can already begin to see that. We've, we've only just now gotten through the greeting of the, of the message, but we can see how applicable these truths are to our very lives. Today we've addressed spiritual authority. Our willingness to submit to those that have authority over our lives, in the church specifically. And I want to ask you, that you would be sure today, in our invitation, let's go ahead and have the worship team come up. There's never really a good time to do this part. You, you may come up and interrupt so that everyone can stare at you as you walk and forget everything that we've talked about for the last 45 minutes. You may do that now. Um, so in our invitation today, li listen to me, okay? This is, this is where the... the we drive the, 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 you know, the nail home, okay? You may recognize that you have a problem with spiritual authority, and that might come in the way of your discipleship relationship. It might come in the way that you perceive your Bible study leader. It might come in the way that you see elders in this church or even relate to me. Maybe you're angry at me about something. I don't know. I'm not I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, and you might have a justifiable reason to be upset with me and not want to listen to me. But I want to point something out to you, is that even when you feel that way, that God has truths that endure beyond that. And God has given us spiritual authorities, and so we have to work these things out. We've got to reconcile these relationships. They have to be right, because it affects the way, our ability to minister. It affects whether or not we can be useful. And so if we're going to be a ministry that's right and functioning the way God wants us to, then you need to work through your, your authority issues. We've also talked today about sanctification. And we talked about how God sanctifies and makes holy people who aren't holy. 
And he does that through belief in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 tells us that Jesus Christ is the way in which imperfect people become perfect. And if you recognize today that you've never been sanctified through the saving work of Jesus Christ, you've never confessed him as Savior, you've never turned to him and declared him Lord over your life, today is the day to do that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And when, and, and when these counselors are standing around the room, go grab one and ask them and say, hey, I don't know if I'm sanctified before God and work through that. There's others of us who are firmly in a place of salvation and we're, we're letting God sanctify us, but we recognize that there are sins in the way that we need to repent of. You, you know, we feel that God is sanctifying us, but maybe we've hit a roadblock. Maybe there's some sort of aspect of your life that needs to be confessed before the Lord and repented of and turned away from. Do not let your sin get in the way of God washing you with his word. Repent of those things. Take the time to come forward and meet with somebody. Now maybe also today in our message you remember that God is going to hold you accountable to how you spend your time and energy. And maybe it's time to repent of vain activities and endeavors that you've been holding on to for a long time. Things that you've been pursuing, things that you've made to use a strong word, idols in your life. And you recognize that all of those things, that you're going you're to be held accountable for those things when you stand before Christ. Those are things that burn. And if you realize today that there's, there are things in your life that need to be dealt with, no matter what they are, any of these, these list of things, let's deal with that. Because here's the deal. As we move forward in 1 Corinthians just like the church in Corinth, we have to recognize that if we don't deal with those things, then the groundwork won't be laid for what God wants to do in our lives. If we want to be used, let's, let's deal with these things. If we want greater truth, let's deal with these things. If we want to grow in our faith, let's deal with these things first before we get into the rest of the letter. And he has so much more to tell us. Understood? Does that make sense? So I'm going to pray. There will be counselors both up here and in the back, they'll look real important. They'll be holding their Bibles like this. This is like a really spiritual way for a counselor <laughs> to stand. Okay? But, but I want you to understand, they're holding this here, and they'll be holding their Bible because they recognize that they don't have answers for you. God does. And they're holding them. They may even hold them over their heart like this because they want you to recognize that their love for you is greater than their judgment of you. And you need to not be afraid to confess things to them that you're holding on to because they love you and they want to work with you. Is that understood? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this letter to Corinth, which is so clearly not just for Corinth. I mean, it's for us. And God, we do... Uh, we, you know, Revelation uh, makes plain, Revelation 3 makes plain who we are as a church. Um, we are Laodicea, and we are a people that are rich and increased with goods. And we, the truth is, you know, 2,000 years of Bible study and church planting throughout the Western world, uh, we are not just increased with goods, but we are rich with truth. 
And all of us in this room, we have our Bible with us today. We can study it in our free time. And we've been given so much truth. And we are enriched. We are an enriched people, just like the church in Corinth, with gifts and abilities. And yet, we so often squander them. And it is an affront. It's an affront to all those believers over the last two millennia who've given their lives for the truth. And most importantly, it's, a, it's an affront to our Savior who carried a cross. And gave his very blood that we might know him. We do not want to be a people who stand guilty of wasting the things that you've given us. So help us to shed the world that fills our cup and turns our eyes away from truth. Help us to shed that. Help us to put the new man on. And help us to live in the reality of Jesus Christ and his sanctifying work and his kingdom work in our lives. Lord, help us to see that. I pray for every person in this room. And I pray particularly for those who don't know you today. Lord, would you give them the boldness that they need to stand up and to talk with someone? For those who don't know you and don't know just how good you are. They can sing the songs and they can, feel, they can feel that there's something spiritual happening here. But they don't know you. And so to feel spiritual is actually vain too. And it can be empty. Without the spiritual one, you are the one that bestows upon us all spiritual things. You quicken us by your spirit. And so Lord, I pray that your quickening work would happen in the lives of those who've not yet given their lives to you. Work in them right now. Lord, be with us. Make us the ministry that you want us to be. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.